Welcome to Regulated and Relational, the bi-monthly podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. Today's guest is Bill Z, the chair of the Education Law Group at Apple, Yoast, and Z LLP in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Bill is also on ATN's board of directors. He joins Julie and Ginger in the studio to explore how to advocate for schools becoming more trauma responsive and what trauma-informed education really means. Let's listen in. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Regulated and Relational, our podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. I'm Julie Beam. And I'm Ginger Healy. And as always, we're excited to talk with you about all things trauma-informed. Today, we have a special guest in the studio, Bill Z, who is going to talk with us about trauma-informed education, special education in particular, and the work that he is doing in the state of Pennsylvania. Ginger, can you tell folks a little bit more about Bill? Yes, I would be happy to. Bill is the chair of the Education Law Group at Apple, Yoast, and Z in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He has over 15 years of experience in school and special education law, an educator by degree and a survivor of early childhood adversity, Bill is very passionate about making schools trauma responsive and supporting educators on this journey. Bill has been active in several local children and youth organizations, including serving on the boards of Aaron's Acres and Touchstone Foundation, Youth Mental Wellness Partners in Lancaster. He, as a member of the core class of Leadership Lancaster in 2009, and he has recently served on their board. A graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and Villanova's University's Charles Widger School of Law, Bill, along with his wife and children, call Lancaster, Pennsylvania their home. And we at ATN are also honored and lucky to have him on our board. So welcome, Bill. Thank you. I think that at least personally, I want to start off with, I mean, I kind of read a lot about how you kind of got here, but I just want to know from you, like, what led you to that specific niche in this law field, you know, with special education and trauma-informed education? What led you to this work? Sure. When I was in college, I think I quickly realized that I wanted to be an educator. And that was primarily because educators were so important to my early development and allowing me to kind of fulfill my potential. I had very intuitive teachers that saw a kid who got in trouble a little bit and maybe wasn't as engaged as he should have been based on some things that were going on outside of school and were really sort of that, you know, that rescue there that I needed. And so I originally was an educator. I studied urban education. I taught at University City High School in Philadelphia for a bit, and then in New Jersey. Met my wife, who I quickly figured out was the better teacher in our house, and decided I would transition into more of a policy, higher ed role. Did that for a little bit, and then decided to go to law school. I'd always kicked around the idea a little bit. Went to law school with the intention of practicing school law in particular, and kind of fell into special education. My first firm was a bigger firm, and no one really wanted to do that work. And it was interesting to me, particularly with my background as a teacher and, and in an urban environment in particular. And I thought that would lend itself well to doing that work and just got a passion for it. And really my career sort of developed from there. And student services, I'm a generalist now. I do a lot of regular school board work, but you know, I can never pull myself away entirely from that student services piece. 
it's an important piece, uh, no matter whether you're representing schools or the families, you know, because there's so much to that piece that requires you to educate folks about it all, about the law, but also, uh, you know, about the needs for the services and all of that in that. So tell us in particular, Bill, there's a lot of really great trauma-informed programming that is happening in Pennsylvania and laws and policies that have been set forth. That makes Pennsylvania one of the states that we should be watching as educators and folks that are wanting to build trauma-responsive schools. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what you've been involved with there? Sure. So it's, you know, it's, it's one of the great things about being an educator by training and an, an attorney by trade. You know, I'm bringing that perspective, I think, to advocacy. And, and I always say that, you know, sometimes people say, well, you don't represent families, you represent school districts. And, and my response to that is, you know, from this side of things, you get to make changes in the margin and, and affect change that way. And so I'm really proud of some of the work we've done, I guess, about eight years ago now, roughly, was when I first started to talk about my own experience with this and get out in front of attorneys and others in the education world here. And we were able to do a lot of really good work with our legislature here and also our school boards association to get some really necessary changes to our school code, where we now have provisions that require trauma-informed programming in schools and also training for both educators and our school board members. Our school board members, whether new or existing, are required to do trauma-informed training every term that they're in. You know, initially I was able to go out and visit with school districts throughout the Commonwealth and do all that training, which was great. It was sort of a whirlwind tour over the holiday months in the winter and really good conversations. So I think that's what started everything. And from there, it's like most things, you know, there was some grant money and that was sort of the carrot for schools to get involved. And I think that then took off to schools really recognizing how important this is and how it can help. It, it, actually, there are a lot of efficiencies. I think a lot of the things we see in special education, when we don't have that trauma-informed net there, the safety net to sort of catch kids, there's likely a lot of over-identification, uh, sometimes under-identification as well, if, if people don't recognize how that can actually lead to eligibility for special ed. I mean, unfortunately, the IDEA hasn't been reauthorized since 2004, uh, trauma only appears in the statute one time, and it's in Part C. It doesn't appear anywhere in, in Part B, school-age services. So I think in Pennsylvania, what we finally recognized, I think looking to some other states, certainly they were a little bit ahead of the curve from where we were. This had a lot of value generally in meeting student needs and you know discipline, all the things that schools spend a lot of time, resources, and money on if we were better about meeting kids where they are, we could do a better job. I mean, you touched on something so important there about meeting kids where they are. You know, I just don't think that's a concept that a lot of schools or communities agencies or, you know, have really wrapped their head around. How are you bringing that into the work that you're doing? How are you teaching that? I think I'm very fortunate where I practice here in Lancaster County. We have a lot of really great community benefit organizations who focus on these issues. And one of the things I've really tried to do is break down silos between those organizations, you know, pediatric medicine, the schools, really getting people talking a little bit more and some of that crossover, you know, with issues that everybody's addressing and coming at from different angles. You know, again, I think I'm very fortunate that 
we have the type of community here that is really invested in kids and people are very giving. I think that's helped. I don't know that this would have accelerated as quickly as it did, maybe some other places. So certainly has something to do with that as well. You know, there's a lot more work to be done. You know, training in and of itself, it feels like, you know, every week I'm getting requests to come out and do trauma-informed training around education and special ed. You know, our school boards association has done a really good job. They have a whole roadmap and blueprint for being a trauma-informed system that's available on their website. So we kind of push that out, you know, as much as we can to districts. But, you know, Pennsylvania is interesting. I mean, you have Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, and then you have a lot of rural area in between. And I think that this is something that caught on more quickly in urban areas. But I think, you know, as you both know, trauma doesn't really care about your zip code or you know, your job or race, ethnicity, any of that. So getting people on board with that was a bit of a process. Yeah, that whole buy-in. Like, I think some of our listeners would just like to pause and stop right there and say, how do I get buy-in? Where do I even start, you know? Are you aware, Bill, of other states who have looked at what Pennsylvania is doing and are trying to do this something similar? Yeah, I mean, I just got back from a big National Institute for Special Ed Conference, and people are from all over, you know, Hawaii to New York. And it's always really gratifying to have those conversations after the presentation's over and you get, you know, 10, 15 people that want to hang around and talk. Definitely, I think, you know, if I look back to 2017, 18, when I first started to really, you know, incorporate this into my practice, it's a world of difference now. And, you know, I looked to states like Ohio and there was some stuff going on in California. There were pockets mm-hmm. where I was able to pull resources from, but, you know, it was still pretty scant. And I think now it, it's nice to be able to go in and say, hey, oh, here are all the great things we've done in PA. You know, we're still working through this, but certainly uh, people from all over the country were saying, hey, how do we start to do some of this? Where do we begin? There's a lot more in the way of resources now. When I think about, you know, what happened to us during COVID and how that has, you know, changed all of us in so many ways, but has changed schools in measurable ways. There's more need for this work at this point. Do you feel from your vantage point that there's more interest in it overall, that COVID has had something to do with spurring that forward? I do, definitely. That was the topic of one of my presentations last week, and it was, you know, School sometimes is the only safe place for kids, and I don't think people appreciate that enough. So then when you have the schools that are shut down and a student who may be in a, in a very abusive environment who's then kind of trapped in that environment for many more hours in the day, or just, you know, there's heightened stress because people are losing their jobs, people are sick. I think that exasperates anything that may be already going on in a home that can be detrimental, you know, for student development. So, yeah, I mean, I'm seeing, unfortunately, I think the repercussions of that in my practice. I mean, there's been much more in the way of behavioral issues, Mm -hmm. people readjusting to being back in brick and mortar schooling, the amount of screen time, I think, from kids, you know, engaging in their education online, maybe some of the lack of supervision, if you didn't really have that in your house, that's not as stable as an environment. Yeah, I think we're going to be continuing to see that for the foreseeable future, but The trauma piece is maybe something that doesn't get focused on enough, which is why it was really important for me to make those two proposals for presentations, one in child find and mental health and the other in trauma-informed special education. don't think we can lose sight of that coming out of the pandemic because it certainly has had an impact. What would you say, like, coming at this, uh, for me, as a parent of four children with IEPs, 
I would love some, you know, suggestions on how to advocate better for my children or what I can do, how to kind of bridge that gap between the schools and the parents when it comes to IEPs, 504s, and just accommodations for children. I think, you know, again, I'll go back to my earlier comment about the IDEA not being authorized since 2000, reauthorized since 2004. I think it's dated. It wasn't intended to be as adversarial a statute as it is. And, you know, I'm not trying to put education lawyers out of work for sure, but I, there's lots of things I can do other than fight about services for students and spend a lot of resources. I have found really in my practice, it's a breakdown in communication more than anything else that leads to problems in education. I think most of the educators I've ever worked with, their heart's in the right place. They want to do the right thing. They're stressed with, you know, lack of resources, often a lack of support. So I think, you know, really focusing in on that communication piece and bringing your knowledge to the table. I mean, I've found that, you know, it's invaluable for educators to hear about what it means to be trauma-informed in the home, what works there, what sort of kids are, you know, not my phrase, something I picked up, but bringing that invisible backpack with them to Mm -hmm. school every day. And that's sort of some of the stuff we focused on. I think from the educator side, you know, one of the things I'll stress is being trauma-informed in your approach. I mean, the language that you use, understanding that parents sometimes bring some baggage related to school from their own traumatic experiences. And, you know, kind of getting past all of that and being willing to acknowledge that, you know, you may not have the market on good ideas cornered and sometimes parents are going to, you know, bring information that's really valuable and useful can be helpful. You know, the biggest thing I think is the adversarial piece. And, you know, if we can all sort of recognize at the end of the day, I think everybody's trying to do the right thing for a child. And we may come at that from different perspectives sometimes. But, you know, if we can effectively communicate around that and understand that that's really where we need to center on, we typically end up doing the right thing. Because educators are parents too, you know, and they're all coming into the room with invisible backpacks, every adult in the room, every child in the room. And taking that adversarial piece out, coming to the table for that child. I like that a lot. Well, that's part of being trauma-informed. I think we want to right. not re-traumatize, right? So being really aggressive and having things devolve into arguments, um, particularly when students are present. And that doesn't happen all the time in meetings that I have, but you know, I try to be very mindful of that. But I think there are a lot of things educators can do, how they write documents, you know, making things very digestible for parents as well, getting away from some of the really technical, hyper-technical descriptions of things. You know, 100-page IEPs to me with lots of charts <laughs> in between, um, rather than putting things in an appendix and making it, you know, easy for individual lay people, so to speak, to understand. I think it's really important. How you go about writing present levels, you know, are you incorporating things that the parents are bringing with respect to what a child has dealt with? Now, sometimes it can be difficult if, if trauma's occurring in the home, because you're relying on self-report. But, you know, I think being kind of a detective as you go through those documents as well to to piece things out and make sure those get captured in documents, I think that's really important. Particularly if you have a a kid who's, you know, a family who's, you know, mobile, moving around a lot, and that document needs to be very understandable by someone in a group in a new district so they can pick it up and know exactly what to do to keep continuity there. Right. When we were talking earlier, you said something I thought was really wise that I wanted to make sure that our listeners heard today was that you're definitely an advocate for 
making sure that the educators know that they don't have to know all the details of a child's trauma in order to be able to meet their needs to, you know, and to build a solid plan around them. Would you want to elaborate on that? Sure. I mean, I think it goes back to having a trauma-informed system, which is just a better practice and is good for all kids. You know, if you're doing that and starting from that premise, it's not as important that you know specifically what a child has gone through. I mean, I know I didn't want to share a lot of that information as a student. Sometimes there's a danger in even doing that. One of the things that I think is concerning about that, however, is I do think we are still at a point where you know, it's, it's trauma-informed is sort of a buzz phrase, and some schools may say, hey, we're trauma-informed, and they haven't taken more of a holistic approach looking systematically about how they handle policy, you know, from the board level down. Boards mm-hmm. are setting policy. How do we deal with attendance, and how do we deal with discipline, and, you know, do we have a restorative approach to discipline, or are we more of the kind of black and white, here are the rules, and here are the punishments? As, as you all know, I mean, Trauma kids will sniff out, you know, phoniness and a lack of commitment to things. And I think if you start to project this idea that you're trauma-informed and then you don't, you know, walk the walk, so to speak, that can actually be worse. Yes, I agree. And I know that, you know, a lot of folks, you know, get to be pretty adept at writing trauma-informed planning into a specific child's IEP, but then their school policies don't change. And ultimately, their school climate doesn't change. And yeah, then you're right back to that and also end up struggling with the kids that do have a background of trauma, but don't qualify for, you know, any specific IEP or 504, you know, for other reasons. That's exactly what we believe at ATN. I mean, we believe that this has to be a top-down approach to making school trauma responsive. And it starts at school boards and it starts at policy. Because the classroom educators, you know, are going to be the people who often get on board the quickest because they see the need and see how great it is. Yes. I mean, even the way the IDEA is structured with eligibility categories. And I mean, I always tell clients, once a student's eligible, I'm not as concerned with what the identification category is. Mm -hmm. What I care about is the services that are included. Are we meeting the student's needs? I think if we do that right, we're going to be in good shape. But I'd love to see, you know, a little bit more in the way of an understanding and incorporation of what we know now about trauma into the IDEA with respect to eligibility. And some of that will be based on, you know, what's in the DSM. And I know there's some push and pull there with respect to how we're going about assessing students and determining whether they have a mental health disability or what that exactly looks like, whether it's, you know, complex childhood trauma, having a category of you know, PTSD is where most kids end up being diagnosed and fall in. And right. I don't know all the time that that makes the most sense. And then the IDEA, you look at, okay, emotionally disturbed, which first of all, I think is a hard description yeah, of the category mm-hmm. or other health impaired. I think educators sometimes, in fairness to them, it's because of the way the law is structured. It becomes very, you know, this is the box and that's the box. And we kind of don't commingle those things. So I'd like to see some changes there if, if we ever get our reauthorization. Yeah. We stop fighting about Title IX and, you know, back and forth and actually start focusing on some other things like special ed would be nice. 
I, I can't agree with you more, Bill. I mean, you're talking about this. I'm like, that is the crux. And as a parent trying to navigate the system, the crux always was, well, if they check the ED box versus the OHI box, or even in my daughter's instance, the autism box, you know, then all these different services and possibilities become available. That's not what the law says, but that's for, you know, whatever convenience or just whatever mindset that a lot of districts have gotten into the way that that plays out for a lot of families across a lot of things and kids impacted by trauma, especially the complex or developmental trauma or whatever you ultimately want to call that as a diagnosis. They need services that cross what typically happens in all kinds of boxes. <laughs> Could not agree with you more on that. Well, and in fairness to schools and educators as well. I mean, I, you know, I'm sound like I'm up on my soapbox here, but funding, I mean, the lack mm-hmm. of funding both at the yeah. federal level and the state level. I mean, our funding system in Pennsylvania here was just recently held to be unconstitutional. So the legislature is going to have to go back and look at how we fund schools and make some changes there. But, you know, I think unfunded mandates create, you know, additional pressure on already, you know, stressed educational systems. And when you start to expand into an area where we need to pay attention to trauma as well, one of the pushbacks you get is, we already can't do what we're supposed to do. Now we're expanding, you know, the net even further. What's that going to look like? So I'd love to see some funding changes as well. I agree. And also, I mean, there's always that controversy of, you know, is trauma, you know, a disability and would it ever end up in an IDEA kind of situation, you know, and or should it be addressed, you know, at a basic tier one level at a basic, we don't know who's got what a score. So why not set, you know, an overall climate and school system to be ready for all of that. And, you know, from my perspective, it's kind of a yes. And it's not mutually exclusive, I believe. And I think that, you know, you look at the Peter P. Compton Unified case from a few years back, I think was when we first started to see really looking at Section 504 and the ADA, that while trauma is not a disability, so to speak, there's enough research, you know, through what Anthony Fleety did and, you know, what Dr. Perry is doing and others, that trauma can certainly lead to a disability with respect to, you know, the outcomes of impact on your brain. And so I think that case is really sort of spurred a lot of more attention in the circles I move in about, hey, this is something we really need to pay attention to. You know, it started out as a class action lawsuit, ultimately settled, but the whole idea was, you know, you do have some responsibility here when you're aware of these issues to address that through child find or through the general programming that you're talking about, Julia. You know, and and I view that as a good thing. Well, I think, you know, again, speaking from a parent point of view, the system the education system, the special education system, where the law interplays, it's very intimidating. It's a foreign language. There's a lot of acronyms and a lot of parents don't know who to ask, don't know what to ask, don't know what their child needs or what's available. It's a hard system. And so having someone like you as an advocate or, you know, mid person, a mediator to navigate that oh what a gift because it's overwhelming it's intimidating it's draining it's exhausting i mean i could go on it's it's hard and it weighs on a lot of families and i think a lot of kids slip through the cracks yeah i agree with all that i mean again i'm pretty fortunate we have a pretty collegial bar here in pennsylvania central pa 
it's not as antagonistic as other places I practice. You know, I have a pretty good relationship with the parent side attorneys that I work with. They, I think most of them recognize I'm a pretty straight shooter. I'm going to defend my client and vigorously, you know, advocate for them. But we could typically have a meeting of the minds. And, and if we keep at the center of our thought that this is about a child and a child's development, yeah. then mm-hmm. I think we can mm-hmm. usually get to a good place. And I'd love to hear, you had mentioned before we started recording that, you know, these trainings that you're speaking at and that you're attending, they're really bringing in some impactful crossover topics. You had mentioned that they are, you know, teaching about co-regulation, which was a word that we weren't even using a few years ago, you know, that is so important. So I love to hear you say that, that that is happening and more people are being educated in crossover fields, you know, on behalf of these children. Yeah, I mean, I, I was talking about polyvagal theory and a legal presentation for special educators <laughs> and uh, never thought that would happen. And, you know, I do a lot of reading on my own, you know, reading cases is one thing, but I, I think you really, in this particular practice area, you need to kind of keep up with what educators are doing, what researchers are doing, and inject that into the advice that you give. So yeah, that was pretty interesting. Was, I don't think I referenced the case in that presentation. It was a lot more, you know, top down, bottom up thinking, how can we, you know, work with kids to co-regulate and make sure that we're not, again, bringing our, our bad energy to a situation, you know, escalating things beyond where they need to be. So, And just a whole shift in the way we view behavior in general. I mean, We talked before we started recording about how sometimes it feels to us like we've been saying this for a long time, and probably it feels that way to you too, but folks are listening now more than ever, I think. Yeah, they definitely are. I mean, I think even in the circles I move in, in the law, I mean, I was, you know, very blessed to be awarded a Pennsylvania legal trailblazer and a Northeast legal trailblazer just on trauma all around being a trauma-informed law firm. I mean, when we developed this new space where we thought about things like colors and sounds and, you know, what it's like for people to come in and work here with our approach with leadership and, you know, relationship building, all that factors in. Again, it goes back to, you know, I would feel very insincere if I went out and spoke to educators and said, you need to do all these things. If I wasn't incorporating that into my practice and how Mm -hmm. I function as a leader in a law firm as well. I appreciate you saying that, Bill, because that's part of what I love about the board of directors that we have that's come from all these different backgrounds, but are really devoted to practicing what we preach, you know, in terms of being a trauma-informed organization for ourselves, for our staff and contractors, and then for the people that we serve. And we did get some feedback recently from a focus group that folks felt seen and heard and safe at our conferences. And so it's like, okay, well, this is good. It's hard to tell folks what to do if you're not focused on doing that yourself. Yeah, I think the board's amazing. I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that, you know, again, I do a lot of reading. I've been looking at these issues for a while, but it's just been amazing to work with our board and the different perspectives that people bring. And I've learned so much thinking I knew a lot about this subject area. Mm -hmm. And then you, you interact with that group of people from their various backgrounds, some who've had trauma experiences, some who have not, and still bring that perspective. It's been an amazing experience. It's certainly something that has enriched my professional and personal life. This board in particular 
is so diverse and so cohesive all at the same time. <laughs> it's wonderful. It really is. And that makes it easier for us to go out into the world and say, you need to know this and this information works and you know you can put it into practice because we're seeing it. We're living it. Bill, is there anything that we haven't hit on that you want to get out there that you would love to share? One of the things I mentioned in my presentation in New Orleans last week was I love that our organization, and I believe really was the first to connect attachment and trauma. I'm trying to learn a lot more about attachment. I think that was an area I definitely felt like I understood more about trauma. I'd like to see a lot more of a push around that and whether that's a groundswell from parents or educators just being trained a little bit more because it's so important. You know, oftentimes educators, they're meeting kids when they're a little bit older and, you know, they're not completely understanding where some of this stuff comes from. And, and that's been really enlightening to me, even at a personal level to understand, you know, where some of this is rooted. So there's that piece and then the intergenerational piece as well. I mean, it really takes somebody to kind of finally recognize this and stop that cycle. So I'd like to see a little bit more work around that as well, yeah. whether that be through education or through, you know, agency work, whatever that looks like. Right. The intergenerational piece is to me is huge. Well, and I think that's, you know, from a school standpoint, that's a great place for the schools that are on a trauma responsive track to get their family engagement programs involved in, because then you empower those families with the knowledge and the understanding of what's happening to them generationally. And that's probably one of the very first ways you get somebody to be able to shift that for their family. And parent training is an area of the IDEA that it is required under the law, and I think it's neglected. And, you know, mm -hmm. we've had some discussions about how do you fix that? Um, how do you work through that? And we have intermediate units here in Pennsylvania that work with districts within their footprint. I think they've done a great job of really trying to, you know, create programming around bringing parents in, you know, being partners and not, hey, we're the experts and we're going to tell you what this needs to look like. Right. It should be a partnership. It should. Yes. Amen. Well, Bill, you know, we could talk for another couple of hours. <laughs> it's important and it's timely. And there's a lot of in-depth pieces of information that we haven't even touched upon. But I appreciate everything that you do in Pennsylvania and through school boards and then also on behalf of ATN. And I'm glad that you made time to talk with us today about this. Absolutely. My pleasure. And I, I again, I really appreciate my involvement with ATN. It's, it's been uh, very fulfilling and I'm excited about what we can do moving forward. Awesome. Well, thanks, Bill. And thanks to everybody who's listening and we'll catch you next time. This has been another episode of Regulated and Relational. In our next episode, our guest Connie Persick will tell us about one of our many senses, interoception, what it is, and why we need to help our children to understand their internal sensations. A special thanks to Lorraine Schneider, our editor, and Joe Kramer for donating our music. For more information about the Attachment Trauma Network, visit our website at attachedtrauma.org. Show notes and upcoming episodes will be available on our website and through anchor.fm. I'm Danny Pankratz. Thanks for listening.